Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you. We thank you for your attendance to our lives. Attendance meaning the way you control, the way you know everything that's going on, the way that you have no surprises. You have direction. You have purpose for, our, for us, each one of us individually. We praise you for that, Lord. We thank you for it. Lord, uh, help us to be more aware of you every single second. Lord, help us to be attentive to your word even more than we have been. <clears throat> be with us as we study your word this morning, Lord. Please have the spirit guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be studying verses 30 through 40 this morning. <clears throat> the title of this one is Courage of Faith. We all should have the courage of faith, and we're going to talk about some people who definitely had the courage of faith. You know, faith, number one, is, is trusting, right? Trusting completely, totally, and uninterruptibly in God's Word and in God Himself. It's basically unconditional confidence. Wow, unconditional confidence. Think about that. God says in his word and basically uh god <clears throat> says whatever he's going to say and that settles it you know there's no other no other uh course it's there that settles it i don't care what you think <laughs> or what your opinion might be if god said it it's going to happen you know our current situation is really simple anybody at any time what that means is we just trust what god says or we trust our own intellect you have a choice right Absolutely. Unbelief or God's way. God's the way. God's way is the way of faith. There are only two options. One of our own way of unbelief or God's way, the way of faith. Achieve, we've been seeing in chapter 11 of Hebrews what faith really is. And that's basically taking the, the, just the bare word of God, acting on it, and risking everything. And that's the whole idea. Because these people that we're talking about in this chapter did just exactly that. They heard God's word and they took it. And then they acted on it and they didn't even worry about the consequences. Anything that demands more than God's word, what's that? That's doubt. So God often explains everything. He is not obligated to do so, but it isn't great that he does. He explains it very well, really. If you read the word, you can get answers to just about anything. John 20, 29 says, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. That would be all these people in the Old Testament, because all these names that are mentioned in chapter 11 all lived long before Christ even showed up on the earth. So they definitely did have blind faith. But they knew what was coming. They knew their salvation was just around the corner. They knew their salvation was assured. Hebrews was written primarily, as you well know, targeting new Christians who grew up as Jews. Now, it still has great meaning for us. There's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing that by any, any means. But these people grew up in strong, dominant families for the most part, dominant families in Judaism. And what did that mean? I mean, when those people became Christians and believed in their Messiah, they lost everything. They lost family. They lost synagogue privileges. They lost friends. They were basically uh, probably without jobs because all the other Jews wouldn't want to be having to do with them anymore. 
They lost social status. They lost respect in the community and lost respect, period. And their entire lives, basically, the traditions they've grown up with, the ceremonies they've been used to, the rituals, the habits, basically the pursuit of righteousness that they all have been doing all their lives by following the law, that was all gone, right? So they were doing their best, mostly unsuccessfully. Obviously, everybody would be unsuccessful trying to follow the law and counting. That's going to be counted to me as, as salvation, no. But what they were doing, they were unsuccessful in doing. They were just holding on. Now, what these people were also doing that were Christians, new Christians, they were still kind of hanging on a little bit to Judaism. And you can't blame them for that because they grew up in it. It's hard to get rid of those kind of, of uh, ingrained, habitual, ceremonial, ritual things. You just felt like you needed to do those. But obviously that was a difficulty. Now, chapter 11 of Hebrews is showing those kind of people and us too. We have traditions and things that we kind of hang on to, too, that aren't necessary. They're showing those kind of people that followers of the Old Testament, those renowned people, everybody knew their names, everybody knew their stories because it was in the Bible, obviously. They were not doing what these people now that were newly come to Christ were doing. What does that mean? Well, faith obeys God regardless of the circumstances. Because faith basically knows that God can't lie. He's not going to deceive us. He can't make a mistake. He can't do wrong. He can't be defeated. And he cannot be surpassed. So you must do what he says. Okay? Now, unbelief is basically blind to this sort of God. They, don't, they think there might be some gods out there, but not this sort of God that demands obedience 100%. But the God like this that, that is so good and cannot make mistakes and so on, he's a God that can be trusted. So you have to trust him. Can you see him? No. But you can listen to the, the witness of what this, this chapter talks about and understand that he's real and you can trust in him. Unbelief is by sight. I don't see it. It doesn't matter. You know, I, I'm not going to pay any attention to it if I can see it, feel it, taste it, touch it, you know, whatever. Supreme mark of faith Really, then, is courage. Do you have the courage to rely on God 100%? And that's really something we all can ask ourselves that. Can you, could you do so what some of these people did? Well, let's talk about some of those. We do not have great faith by having great courage, but we have great courage because we have great faith. Does that make sense? So courage is demonstrated in this particular section three different ways. It conquers struggle. Faith also continues even in suffering. That's one hard to, to grasp. And faith also depends on the fact that salvation is there and we must trust in it. Can't see it. Can't feel it and touch it yet. Those people in the Old Testament, they didn't even know who was going to bring faith, you know, who was going to bring salvation. I mean, they didn't even know they trusted Okay, so the first one, conquering in struggle. Those are verses we'll, we'll go to here in a second. We have to struggle because we're not of this world. Why do we struggle then? Because we don't do things the way everybody else does them. Only weapon we have really is faith, faith in God, because he is the ultimate. He is creator God. He is without fault. And that because we have that kind of faith, 
and our struggles occur, it's only by faith that we can handle those struggles properly. Now, the first one he talks about here is in verse 30 of chapter 11. He says, because of faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encompassed for seven days by the Israelites. Okay, well, what about that? Let's talk about that for a second. I, I like to go back and kind of put myself in those, those, uh, those conditions. What was going on? Okay. Well, this is about 40 years after they left Egypt. And what had happened during those 40 years? Well, they left Egypt. They pursued by Pharaoh. Pharaoh was defeated because God <laughs> drowned everybody, drowned the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea when he brought it back down together. You know, let the Israelites cross over the Red Sea first because he separated the waters. <clears throat> but then he killed all of Pharaoh's army. But then Moses sent spies into the, to the promised land and said, go see what we have to face. And they came back and 10 of the 11, 10 of the 12 spies came back and said, we can't handle those giants. We can't handle those people. They're too fortified. They're, they're too strong for us. We can't do that. And the other two, Caleb and, and uh, Joshua said, yeah, we can do it. Let's go. God said, nope. Unbelief here means you guys can't go. So walk in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, where's the wilderness? It's in Midian. Now, I don't think Midian was quite as bad as it looks today. Back then, it probably wasn't quite as bad, but today it's just devoid of any greenery at all. It's just desolate country. You can Google it. Don't Google. Don't use Google. You can look up what it looks like over there, and you can find Mount Sinai, and it's actually across the Red Sea in Midian, just like we, the Bible says, but it's just desolate country. So they came out of that desolate country, headed north, and the first place they came to was basically the crossing of the Jordan River at Jericho. Now, Jericho was a fortified city. Why was it fortified? It was across the river in Israel, and all the enemies of Israel were back on the other side, on the east side of the Jordan. And so they fortified that city dramatically. There was a wall, probably there was a couple of walls around that city. And they were, they could have been as high as 30 or 40 feet. They could have been as wide as 16 to 20 feet wide. So they were very well protected. So the Jews come there and the very first task that's facing them, we've got to conquer this city. And look at that wall. Oh, my goodness. How would you feel? What are we doing here? How are we going to do this? We can't do that. We can't tear that wall down. You know, there's a whole bunch of us. You know, how many, how many people were in the army? Well, hundreds of thousands. There's a lot of people, a big population. How are they going to tear down the walls? How are they going to get into the city and get, the, get control of it? Well, God says, just trust me. Here's what you got to do. March around it for seven days. Do what? What's that going to do? And then on the seventh day, walk, march around not once, but seven times, and then blow trumpets and shout real loud. And they're going, what? What's that going to do? That doesn't make any sense, right? But God said it. So they trusted. And what happens when they did? The way I envisioned it, the way they show a kind of cross-section of, of Jericho was that it was kind of built on a hill. And the walls were built in such a way, there was an outer wall and an inner wall. And when they shouted, God knocked the walls down. And when they knocked them down, they kind of fell down the hill. And so they just fell down flat so they could just walk right into the city. Isn't that interesting? So God wanted them to understand this was impossible. 
You could not do this unless I did it. And he did. Once again, do you believe such things? Absolutely. Believe everything the Bible says. So that's what happened. Faith looks foolish. What do you suppose was shouted down from the walls as they walked around that city for seven days? Ooh, I'm afraid. <laughs> you know they were getting taunted constantly. What are you guys trying to do? God wants us to see the pride of man. And so he gave them the chance to see the pride of man there. But he says, just stand back and watch what I'm going to do. And of course, he brought the wall down. And that was really bringing down the wall, but it was also bringing down the pride of men, too. Think about it that way. So that was interesting. The Jews were willing to do anything God wanted them to do because probably they were thinking, if we don't do that, we'll have to go back and wander in the wilderness for 40 years until we all die out, and then the next generation will have to do it. So don't know that. That's probably true. Now, look at verse 31. Prompted by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed along with those who refused to believe and obey because she had received the spies in peace. Now, who was Rahab? <laughs> Very unlikely candidate for this. Very unlikely. Number one, she was a Gentile, not a Jew. Number two, she was a prostitute. Number three, she was a Canaanite. Those, that's what God targeted. We've got to wipe out the Canaanites, right? But even that, she was even more than that. She was an Amorite. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, that's a race that long before had been been targeted for destruction. Why? Because remember Og, king of Bashan, Amorite. Og had a bed that was 13 and a half feet long. What's 13 and a half feet? This table right here is seven feet long. Two of these tables put together, his bed was that long. How big was he? We don't know. He's a big guy. He was an Ephilim. That was an Amorite. God said, wipe them out. She was an Amorite. How about uh, God's grace and mercy is open to all who receive it, though, right? Regardless of who you are. You know, here you go, guys. If anybody ever says to you, and there's a lot of this going around today, Christianity is, is too exclusionary. You guys are intolerant. You got to do what Jesus says to be, be saved, right? Yeah, that's true. That's right. And yeah, we are. We, are in, we basically are pretty intolerant. That's correct. That's correct. But we're open to anybody, regardless of who you are, where you come from, what your old religion was, whether you're a giant or not. The giants can't be saved, by the way. Nephilims can't be because they're half fallen angels, so they can't be saved. But anybody else can. All you have to do is just believe what Jesus says and accept his, accept his sacrifice. So the difference in Rahab from the rest of Jericho, Jericho she believed in God. Now, it's kind of hidden, I think, in the scriptures, but I think all those people in Jericho knew exactly who God was. God of the, the Hebrews, okay? And he is the most powerful God. They heard all the stories. But she was the only one in that city that believed. And because of her faith, then her family was spared. That doesn't mean they were saved. It could have meant they were saved later. Don't know that for sure, but she was. She was saved. Now, who was Rahab? She had a son, and her son's name was Boaz. So she was the great-great-grandmother of David and in the line of Christ. So there's, that's, that's reward if I ever heard of it, right? 32 and 33. 
and 34. It says, what shall I say further? He's, this, again, this is the author of Hebrews talking to those Jewish guys and women that have accepted Christ but are still struggling with their faith. He says, and when, what shall I say further? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm going to say that differently. I don't like that name. I'm going to say Barak, okay? Simply because I don't like the other pronunciation. Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, the prophets, who by the help of faith subdued kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promised blessings, closed the mouths of lions, extinguished the power of raging fire, accepted the devourings of the sword, out of frailty and weakness won strength and became stalwart, even mighty and resistless in battle, routing alien hosts. Now let's go through each one of these people. They are fascinating. First one mentions Gideon. They were praised not for their stature, not for their their uh, office, not for what necessarily what they had done in the past. They were praised because they what they did was by faith. What did Gideon do? Well, he was a judge and a military leader, but he was used by God to demonstrate God's power. God's power. And how did they do that? Well, they had an army of thirty thousand men, and they were going to go up against a a really bad guy. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. I didn't even write it down. But anyway, this, this bad guy was, was someone that uh, was coming against Israel, and he had an army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Jabin, I think his name was. And Gideon only had 30,000 men. Now, he was thinking, now I'm going to have faith. Our 30,000 men will overcome these many thousands. Also, this Jabin guy had 900 iron chariots. And you think about how devastating that would be. All you do is run over people. But God said, no, trust me. I want you all your men to go down, all your leaders go down there and take a drink out of the stream. And depending on how you take a drink, he said, I'm going to pick those men. Some men went down there and scooped water up and drank like this so they could keep their eyes out. The other ones kneeled down and just, just started drinking like a dog. He said, all the men that drank water the right way, he says, get them. There were 300 of them. Give each one of them a lamp, each one of them a basket, each one of them a trumpet, and come with me. And I'm sure Gideon's going, okay, what are we going to do? There's, there's thousands of guys out there. What are we going to do? And he says, well, each one of you take a distance away from those men and circle them with your, with your lamps. Keep them covered until I tell you. As soon as I tell you, when you hear rustling, in the trees, take the cover off your lamp and blow the trumpet and see what I can do. And what he did was he scared those guys so badly. Thought they were going to get invaded by so many men. They started killing each other and they wiped themselves out. Sisera was the general and he was the most feared man on the face of the earth because he had that huge army. Well, he ran like a little scary rabbit he ran to a city and went into that city and went to a woman and said, hide me. She said, okay. She knew who he was. So he said, I'm thirsty and hungry. So she gave him something to eat. He got comfortable, laid down, went to sleep. She took a tent peg over and ran it through his temples and killed him. And when 
Gideon showed up and said, you got a guy in there named Cicero? She said, yep, got him. He's dead. He said, I don't believe you. She said, I'll throw his head over to you. <laughs> so don't make a woman mad, guys. <laughs> Amen. At least don't go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so... Gideon's faith, 300 men defeated an army, probably, I don't know, probably 500,000 or something like that. Probably amazingly big. And three with 900 chariots of iron. Oh, my goodness. Next man, Barak. Who was Barak? He was also a judge. He was also with another judge, the only woman judge that existed. That was Deborah. And he was little known about him except for this particular incident in Judges chapters 4 and 5. It's mentioned here in Hebrews, and that's it. That's all we know about Barak. Um, what happened in this particular one, they were again facing a huge army, and they only had 10,000 men from two tribes. And the deal was, Deborah had said, we can amass an army from each one of the tribes. We can get, you know, 5,000 men out of each tribe. It'll give us 60,000 men. We're not going to do that. We're going to use two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. We're going to just 5,000 men from each one, and we're going to go fight this guy. Deborah said that. She's a prophetess as well as a judge. And so uh, Barak says, okay, let's go, but you're going to come with me. That would never happen. Woman coming with him in battle, but she said, yeah, I need you to go with me because you're my, you're my judge, so I want you to come along. So she did. Judges 4.15 says, and the Lord routed this army and killed them all. Barak accepted this, said, wow, isn't this cool? His faith allowed him to do it. Next one, Samson. <laughs> I love Samson. You know, I wrote this down, guys. I want you to hear this. This man is not really known for his faith. His physical strength and gullibility are what we know about. But I called him, and this is me now, I called him an immature, self-centered, gullible, out-of-control man most of the time. And he was. Absolutely. But when when came down to the, the final thing, he was a man of faith. He never doubted where his camp, where his power came from. It didn't come from his hair. It came from God. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, Judges 13, 25, 14, 19, 15, 14, and 16, 28 tell us that every time he, he needed his strength, it came from God, not from his hair. So what happened at the end of his life? He was weakened, but he came back strong. And, of course, he did what God wanted him to do. He took down the Philistines. He got a haircut, but that's and that was part of, of the sign of him being strong was the fact that he had long hair. But that really was the reason. Like I said, those four verses in Judges said he got his strength from God. Now, I think he got his haircut because he needed his uh, pride brought down a few notches. But so that happened. He also lost his eyes too. Then the next guy they mentioned is Jephthah. Who was this guy? He was a judge before Samson. His responsibility was to do the Ammonites. And the Ammonites, another one of major enemies. Obviously, Ammon was one of the sons of Lot that he had conceived by the help of his daughters. Won't go into that. But Jephthah made that very foolish vow. Remember that? You give me victory. Whatever comes out to greet me first, I'll sacrifice to you. Of course, his daughter came out. His one and only daughter came out. Now, I've studied on that a lot, and I think I've come to a conclusion. I'm not sure. I'm absolutely sure of this. But I think what happened was 
he dedicated his daughter to God and she accepted that. And so she never got married and she dedicated the rest of her life to God, never had children or anything like that. She just dedicated her life to God. So in other words, she did sacrifice her whole life to him. So she was a sacrifice. I don't think he killed her. That, that would make sense. I don't think. So, but he had faith and that faith, I think here he's given us that because faith can make mistakes. So be careful what you vow. Good lesson there too. And then David, of course, we know about David. You know, as a teenager, he kills a giant. He flees from Saul, even though he's anointed as king. He flees from Saul for 13 years. Then he does things that alienate him and his family completely. He has sons that go against him constantly. But God, what did he say about him in Acts 13, 22? A man after my own heart who will do all my will. So he had faith, unparalleled faith. David pleased God because of the courage of his faith. Why? To trust God and do what God wants. And then there's Samuel, one of my favorites. He was the very first judge. He was also the maker of kings. He stood boldly in the middle of a polluted society and fearlessly proclaimed the word of God. That's faith, with courage. He came against the Philistines, the Amorites, the Ammonites, but his main opponents, his own people. That's a biggie. Isn't it interesting? But often it takes a whole lot more courage to stand up against our friends than against our enemies. And that's true. This prophet of God, Samuel, was Israel's last judge. He was the transition between the judges and the kings. And he began ministering at a very young age. Remember his, his mother, Hannah, couldn't have children. She prayed to God and God said, I'll give you children. But she said, I'll dedicate this, this child to you. And sure enough, she did. She basically sent him to the, the temple or the tent at the time it was in uh, Shiloh. And that's where Eli was and his two bad sons, if you remember the story. But he went there when he was just a little bitty one. And he grew up in the, in the, temp, in the tent, basically the, the God's residence, essentially, back then. And then he ministered to Israel his whole life from the time basically when he was born until he died. He was even brought up from the dead. And that's another one to, to people have a lot of questions about. I think that really did happen. I don't think it happened any other time. Anybody's ever, ever been, anybody else has never been brought up from the dead except for Christ. But Samuel came back up as a spirit, of course. Then he mentions in, uh, Verse 35, I guess it's verse 34, it talks about the other prophets. What's he talking about there too? These are unnamed, except for Samuel. That's in uh, 32. They accepted God's commands and did what he said, with the, with the exception maybe of Jonah, who ran, but he turned around actually and did what God wanted him to do after all. They accepted God's commands, faced whatever opposition came along, and conquered by faith. Now, let's look at all those different things he mentions in there. I think that's interesting to go through there. It says the first thing he says was they obtained blessings and closed the mouths of lions, probably talking about David, obviously. Daniel, I mean, sorry, Daniel. Next thing he says is extinguish the power of raging fire. Well, who was that? Well, that would be Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their real names, folks. It ain't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's Hananiah, 
Mishael and Azariah. And you can remember that because they start, their names start with the same names. In other words, Mishael is Meshach. Azariah is Abednego. Start with, both start with A. And Hananiah is Shadrach. Second letter is H. You can remember it that way. Okay. So they overcame their fear. They had courage of faith. They didn't know where they would die in the fire. Probably thought they were going to die in the fire, but of course they didn't. And the power to accomplish what God wanted these prophets to do was to conquer through courage and through faith. Now, verses 35 through 38 continues, faith continues even in spite of suffering. So let's read those verses. It says, some women received again their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured to death with clubs, refusing to accept release that they might be resurrected to a better life. Others had to suffer the trial of mocking and scourging, even chains and imprisonment. 37 says they were stoned to death. They were lured with tempting offers to renounce their faith. They were sawn asunder. They were slaughtered by the sword. While they were alive, they had to go about wrapped in these skins of sheep and goats, utterly destitute, oppressed, cruelly treated. 38 says men of whom the world was not worthy, roaming over the desolate places in the mountains living in caves and caverns and holes of the earth. What are we talking about there? These four verses are amazing. Number one, the first ones are talking about Elisha and Elijah. Elijah first, Elisha second. There were two mothers, the widow of Zarephath and the Shunammite woman. Elijah healed the woman of Zarephath's son, brought him back from the dead. And Elisha, the Shunammite woman's son, brought him back from the dead. They believed in resurrection, obviously, and it happened. Others had to endure mockings and scourgings and chains and stoning and sawing in two and so on and so forth. But to the person of faith, no affliction is ever escaped or reduced by denial or compromise of God's word. They never did that. They went through whatever came their way. No denial, no compromise. What can be easily escaped for the worldly person is not for the faithful person. It's all the worldly person has to do is just renounce. But we're not worldly. We're not going to do that. So when suffering, because of God's word, standing for him, God's people will, will take torture, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection, quote, unquote. So this is the height of faith. Despite of suffering, you're not going to renounce. You're not going to compromise anyway. And then the last thing is we depend on salvation. That's the last two verses here, 39 and 40. What does it say? And all of these, that's a ton of them in chapter 11, the whole chapter 11, all of these, though they won divine approval by means of their faith, did not receive the fulfillment of what was promised. And we've got to remember that. And we'll talk about that some more. Because God had us in mind, talking about the Jews who had converted and us today, God had us in mind, had something better and greater in view for us than even all of those people of the Old Testament, so that those heroines and heroes of the faith should not come to perfection apart from us, that is, before we could join them. So what are we talking about there? The true faith has the courage to depend on, count on salvation, regardless of when, to live in hope, 
like these old saints in Hebrews chapter 11. They lived in hope. They had no assurance, visible assurance or factual assurance, historical assurance of what God was promising. It hadn't happened yet, but we do. We have factual and historical evidence. These folks in Hebrews 11, the main reason for writing Hebrews 11 is these folks did not even have any idea the nature of what God was even going to do to give them salvation. They didn't know. But they still had faith. They did what God wanted. They followed his leading. It was in their future, but they never saw it. They knew it was coming. They knew, trusted in it. They had confidence that only one day God would do what he said he was going to do and do the necessary thing to redeem them and reward them. They knew that. But they did not receive what was promised. It was too early. They did gain approval, though, through their faith. And we can do the same thing. God has promised this something for us. But not until our time, the time of the age of grace, which is now 2,000 years old, it's been happening, you know, it's ever since Jesus' resurrection is when that started. Salvation was completed, and we know about it. We have that factual, historical proof. And these heroes of the faith, their salvation was based on what Christ would do, not knowing even who he was. Our faith looks back. Their faith looked forward. But these Hebrews 11 people were certainly not second-rate believers. In fact, their faith was probably stronger than ours. So they believed, yet suffered, struggled all the while. What? Depending upon the salvation that they knew was coming, they had no idea how or when. They just knew it was going to happen. Today, we have less faith than they do, in my opinion. But we have the greater light. So our faith should be stronger, really. But is it? But is it? I think everybody in this room it is. But many Christians don't have any idea about why or who or when. They don't know, have any idea of the history, what they went through back in the Old Testament, what they're going through now. How does it relate to the Old Testament? How do we even know those things? Because they don't read their Bible. I feel sorry for the ones who've been brought up in the traditions of, of religiosity. Because they don't know anything. They don't read their word. We must always remember, John twenty twenty nine, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And basically, that, we fall into that category too, although we don't have the, the history and historical fact that Jesus did die and was raised from the dead three days later. We know that. He arose into heaven. He's there now sitting at the right hand of God. But we never saw that. So, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. We fall into that category too. But especially those before Jesus. They really did fall into that category. And we must look to them as examples of what we should be like. Anybody have any comments? Okay. Good. <laughs> God did good. <laughs> That's pretty good. Lord, we thank you for the, the reminders that you give us throughout your word of, of the truth of who you are, the truth of what you have done in the past, what you are planning and doing today, and what you are planning and will do in the future. 
because we know you are a God that does not lie, a God that is a personal God, a God that can come alongside us, talk to us on a daily basis. We can talk to you, Lord, back and forth. We can pray to you at any time. We can trust you for your spirit who lives within us to guide and direct our lives. Lord, no other religion on the face of the earth can make those claims. We praise you for that, Lord, because we know it's true. Thank you for showing us these heroes and heroines of the faith so many years ago, some of them going back all the way to Moses, which is, and even before that, really to Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago in our past. But Lord, we know that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever, that you will never lie to us. You always fulfill your promises, and we praise you and stand in awe of that. So help us to grab a hold of that, Lord, and hold on tight because this world is falling apart. But that's by design. That's what we're going to talk about tonight, that we know we're in the end times. We know that your return to call us up is not that far away. But even if it is, Lord, that doesn't matter because we know we will eventually be done that way. We will rise from the dead or rise from life in the rapture. And Lord, we praise you for that knowledge and the assurance we have. Watch over and guide us through this week, Lord. Thank you for the wonderful weather we've had. We praise you that springtime and beautiful things are about to happen. And we always look forward to that, Lord, and thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Perfect.